Hello and welcome to Safe and Sound, a podcast by the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland exploring the world of human factors in healthcare and patient safety. Each episode we will try to untangle different aspects of this complicated web of human factors in healthcare through interviews with some extraordinary guests and faculty in Ireland and across the world. Today I'm joined by Professor Stephen Yule, who is Chair of Behavioural Sciences as well as the Programme Director for the Masters in Patient Safety and Clinical Human Factors at the University of Edinburgh. Professor Yule, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a treat to have you here today. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So we start every podcast with a relatively subjective question, as you can imagine. What does the term human factors mean to you? Yes, well, it's a great question to start off. So I think human factors is fitting the task to the human. And, you know, there are lots of definitions of human factors, but that's really what it's about. It's about optimizing workplaces to, to allow people to achieve their potential. And, you know, I think about human factors a lot about um, enhancing performance and optimizing systems around people, um, but also well-being. So we want people to have long and happy and healthy careers and and to make it to retirement. And so let's let's try and, and stop the injuries occurring to people in the workplace and let's let's allow people to achieve their physical and cognitive work to the best of their ability. Fantastic. And from what I gather, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're an academic psychologist and, and obviously you've spent um, a, a long time in studying team performance and non-technical skills and and there's some mention of when I was kind of obviously looking up your bio and your profile about high-risk industries but I suppose before all that kind of happened how how did you get into psychology I mean what what kind of drew you to it well it's a family tradition ah so okay. my, my father's a psychologist and so that's not so it's like almost like a, a dynasty but it's not really um and so I was always aware of what psychology was and I actually went to Aberdeen University to study undergraduate psychology, so I was kind of interested in that. And and Scottish universities have, especially in arts, have a really nice program where you can you can choose different subjects. So I actually studied philosophy and a bit of logic and psychology and ethics and and other other aspects, history as well. But really specialised in in psychology, and so so that was the that was the that was the draw to psychology. And you know. We study a lot of things, um, cognitive psychology, health, clinical, neuropsychology. It wasn't until the fourth year where I actually took a, an elective class in human factors, or I think it had a bigger title, but it was basically human factors. And it was taught, the first lectures were taught by Professor Rona Flynn, who many of your listeners will, will know or at least heard of. And she, I didn't realise it at the time as an undergraduate student, but actually I was being taught by the preeminent world expert in the topic which is amazing, but you don't realise that. And she's so humble. And actually, she just brought to life what the application of psychology to the workplace could be like yeah. and how do you actually apply all these principles to, to improve performance and, and safety. And so, so that really was, the, that was the, the, the change for me. And so actually, I spoke to her after the class um, and said, you know, I was thinking about doing a master's in this area. And so I did a master's in Birmingham and then came back to Aberdeen to do a PhD with her. So I was very fortunate to be in that position and the and the rest is history. Ah, fantastic. Okay. So this this you're exposed to this from quite a young age initially. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um and, and you spent you spent some time nearly a nearly a decade of your life over in over in New England, over in, in Harvard and uh, you know, I suppose was that following on from your PhD or what brought you over there? 
so a little bit. I was actually on, I'd made I'd made it to the rank of lecturer in in psychology in Aberdeen. So I'd done a postdoc. Actually, my PhD was in safety in in power stations, leadership and safety, safety culture, and nice. not not in a in what we now call non-healthcare industries, but actually in non-nuclear power generation in the UK and also the US. And then I'd done postdoc in non-technical skills, helped develop knots, which is being used around the around the world for assessment and training of surgeons, which is amazing. And then I got a lectureship in psychology and I guess at the at the time I'd been in Aberdeen a long time and an opportunity came up to to move to to Harvard to to be to work in a simulation center, um, to be director of research and education, and to be on faculty at Harvard in surgery, and so it, it seemed like a great opportunity to to go there. And that's where you would have met Dara O'Keefe then. I from, did, from the I did indeed. For, okay. Yeah, I did indeed. There, so Dara and I worked together on the education program. Oh, but that, that was an amazing place, and we we really um, focus a lot on non technical skills. Developed a research lab. Did a lot of training. Some of it sponsored by the medical insurer there so so team simulation team training for operating room teams on crisis management on speaking up on assertiveness on dealing with the unexpected much like you have in, the, in your fabulous simulation center here um as well but it was an it was an amazing time to, yeah. to be there and that, and that makes a lot of sense because ultimately it reduced costs for the for the insurers and stuff as well um I, and what was the difference in the landscape between say between Boston and Aberdeen, I guess at the time, or Boston, or the US and the UK in general, in in terms of human factors and simulation training, was there much of a gulf there, or were things just kind of fairly nascent at that point on both sides of the Atlantic? I, I think there's a huge gulf. I think that in Europe we're much more advanced in that area at that time, which is about 2010. Um, you know, thinking about RCSI, we looked to you. You were already. All the surgical trainees were doing human factors training of, of some description um, already. That was just commonplace. That was not the case in in the US. Oh, really? Um, so okay. it's quite it's quite different. But there was an appetite for it. And I think part of the reason I was hired there was that they they had looked to Europe um, and seen a lot of different research groups starting to work on this, and actually wanted to um, have some local expertise in that area. And so. So we developed those simulations. We developed some national um, training in human factors and non-technical skills for surgical trainees. So my friend and colleague Doug Smink um, there and Jamie Robertson um, developed some of those materials. We did the team training program. We also established a committee at the American College of Surgeons on non-technical skills. And so it was a it was a great time. Seemed a lot of opportunity. I mean, even so, global surgery is one of my passions as well and the non-technical skills for low and middle income contexts and yes. resource constrained contexts and so I worked with Robert Riviello and, and the team there on developing knots for situations that are not like Dublin or Edinburgh or Tokyo or Melbourne where actually the resource level is quite variable and I think non-technical skills can be really important in those contexts mm-hmm. maybe even more so for patient safety. Amazing. What brought you home then? To back to back to Scotland. Um, that's a great question. I um, so like I really wanted to, to to come back and apply some of this work back in in Europe, build a research group back in in Scotland. seemed like a seemed like a great opportunity to to do that. 
we still have a lot of um, collaborations in in the US, still hold some grants. Um, and so to actually link Edinburgh to, to Boston and other centres in the US is what we've what we've done, which has been exciting. Really now for the fellows. So the fellows now get an opportunity to collaborate and to travel and have the same experience of widening their network and experience in different places. Absolutely. And just speaking of which now, I mean, and you did exactly that. You have a large faculty now with hmm. 21 mentors and researchers in Edinburgh. And you, you, I have to say, just reading through some of this stuff, you've got some really novel research themes, which I, I found quite enjoyable. And I suppose to, uh, I mean, not even all listeners here in, in, in Ireland would know, but certainly in the US would know. I mean, my understanding was was that sabermetrics had something to do with computational analy- analytics in, in baseball, but you've, you've managed to develop this into surgical education and surgical training as well. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I can do. It's an exciting um, time. So, you know, in the past, we'd looked to high-risk industry as, a, as an inspiration for how we could manage safety better. Yeah. And so... You, a lot of aviation examples, not exclusively aviation. I, f- I find that a, a tired analogy, and I think lots of people do. And so really our focus now on looking at sports and elite athletics, and actually super elite athletics as well, because there are gradients of eliteness apparently, is to try and understand how do they, how do they gather data on individual and team performance? How do they deliberately improve to be better? And actually we think of the, of the operating room team as an elite athletics team um, that is set together with certain competencies to, to, to really perform well, understanding the context in which they have to work, understanding the, the drivers um, for individuals, but really gathering data. And so I'll give you an example from baseball. Baseball probably is more scientific in its approach to team performance than surgery is, which sounds yeah. crazy. And, and, and they also, they recognise that they are not a... Uh, a high risk or an important industry, but they're obviously important for fans and players and, and so on. Um, and I guess it's partly to do with the money and financing, but also the drivers of success and the, and the goals. Um, but for example, um, video in baseball and analytics of individual and, and team performance are, are, are measured on every play. And actually you can look back and see how did certain people perform in certain situations um, and so another example is U.S. Tennis Association. So we're working with them really on how they develop American champions. And they're very deliberate about how they coach with video data and analytics, how you compare yourself against your prior performance, how you compare yourself against your peers, how you compare your, your serve and your swing and how you deal with pressure against the, the world number one. And so they're very deliberate about how they coach towards mastery. And that's coming into surgery but in a in a very um idiosyncratic way it's not the norm so we need to use video analytics better to understand and get insight into our performance absolutely and i and i know that you know this is obviously as you said kind of driven partially for partially financially and also partially because they they want to be as good as they possibly can in every single angle and maybe this is partly a culture thing as well. We've never really kind of looked to see how to improve yourself from that point. So it's 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 hugely it's it's hugely novel and very exciting. Uh, and and I suppose just kind of moving on from that as well. I mean, you've, you you've looked at at simulation and tools during space flight, even or long duration space flight, which from from what I gather includes mixed reality training, and it sounds almost like kind of crisis resource management, but in space uh, and 
which kind of really blew my mind when I was kind of looking at it. But tell me about some of that research. I mean, I, and I presume this has got nothing to do with the new uh, Tesla parked outside St. <laughs> Stephen's Green today. I wish. I wish. Um, so the, so NASA is really, it's a fun part of the of the journey. So we um, were successful in, in getting some research funding from NASA, actually three research contracts from NASA, to, de- to develop um, um, non-technical skills for astronaut crew for medical event management in space. Actually, NASA is an amazing funder because they're very specific about the the gaps in knowledge that are required, and they have a very clear purpose. And so there's a whole thing called the Human Research Roadmap, which specifies the gaps. And some of the, some of the gaps are things like we don't know the risks of um, team function and variability on outcomes and the risk to deep space flight. And so we developed a non-technical skills framework um, for, for what are the skills required for astronauts to, to, to manage medical events in flight. Remember, these are not multi-professional medical mm-hmm. teams. They are mm-hmm. teams of really high-performing um, astronauts who have backgrounds in life sciences, in engineering, in, in aviation. Some of them have physician-level training, but that's not the norm. Um, and we really worked on, we, we built a full-scale simulator with colleagues from, um, from Canada and, and the US that's based on one of the modules in the Destiny um, module in International Space Station. It's a full-scale simulator. Um, I'm going to talk about it later today at the, at the conference, but full-scale simulator um, doesn't, have, doesn't have zero gravity. That's the only thing that we couldn't simulate, <laughs> but people kind of expect you to be able to do that as well, but we couldn't do that. Um, and we developed a series of medical events that really like a CRM training for astronauts, you know, in the same way that for surgical team simulation, um, low frequency, high acuity events, if you get a chance to, to try one or two in simulation, the chances are you'll be able to perform better at an airway emergency or a massive hemorrhage or something in real life or a code situation. Same thing goes for, for space flight. And if, if you think about flight to, to Mars, it's about a three-year um, round trip to Mars, no chance of early return, no chance of resupply, you can't swap the team out. So that the chance of a medical event occurring, even in a very healthy population, potentially with some pre-flight surgery uh, as well, that's not quite been decided, um, could potentially have your appendix or gallbladder removed pre-flight to try and reduce the risk of that. Um, there's still a chance for a medical event, and, and there has been medical events in space, and they have to be managed um, in, in that environment with, with what you have, resources and, and team level. And so um, that's been really exciting. But, you know, we've used that um, research partnership with NASA to develop some of the technology. So Roger Diaz in, in Boston, who I've worked with really closely for a number of years, we've been developing um, um, biomarkers of cognitive load, and now we're using developing those for terrestrial settings, in, especially in the operating room. And so we have some PhD students, Emma Howey here in Edinburgh, um, and others using those metrics developed really in spaceflight for terrestrial settings. And that's the mission of NASA. There, there are only about 45 US astronauts, but actually all the research funding goes towards technology that we can use in space to make everyone's life better. Amazing, that sounds incredible. So. I, I suppose that's, that's a, a lovely overview of some of the, 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 the work you're doing. You've obviously got very uh, uh, deep connections with the U.S. and you still collaborate with them an awful lot. But this is 
you know, human factors, I suppose, in general, is something that even if you were to simply take the pulse on social media, is just gaining more and more traction uh, all the time. And it's, and it's becoming important for professional development, patient outcomes. We're hearing stories every day of, um, of uh, poor outcomes as a result of things that may, you know, at least 30 to 40 percent of the time may be related to non-technical skills. What's the uptake around human factors and patient safety in, in, in Edinburgh at the moment? You, are you, we're seeing our numbers increase over here in Dublin. Are you seeing something similar at Edinburgh? Is there, a, is there a general surge towards recognition that this is actually important? I think so. I think so. It's difficult to, to, it's difficult to tell, but we have a master's in, in patient safety and clinical human factors. It's actually really similar to, to your master's here. And there are other master's programs around the, in the UK, several, and actually an increasing number. Um, so there's a, there's a desire for some core education in the topic. And I think our learners, like yours, are people who are working, mainly working in the health service. Um, they're adult learners. They recognise the, the issues. They recognise that there is not a, a human factor service in every hospital, at least there's not in Scotland that you can call on to fix design issues or to uh, arrange training or to um, advise on the introduction of new technology or the integration of existing technology, you know, all those, all those things that we know from human factors that, that can lead to variability in performance. And so there's, there's really not that service. So actually, my hope is that we, have, we probably have on the program just now, it's a three-year online program. There are around 70 students on that program. Mm-hmm. And the hope is over time that those students then go back into the workplace and the knowledge about human factors and the awareness and the importance of it is raised, but also the tools and the skills to be able to do analysis and redesign and quality improvement um, is, is upped as well from within the workforce. And so actually that over time could be better than having a dedicated human factors unit in, in each hospital. But that's going to take some time. So I think, I think, it's, I think it's definitely growing popularity. And then at the college side, so for at the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, I'm very fortunate to be the director of non-technical skills at the college, which yeah. being a non-surgeon is quite an unusual situation for me. But there, there's, a, there's a faculty of non-technical skills educators, about 125 in the faculty. And we have a committee on non-technical skills really around teaching uh, non, not courses for consultant surgeons and also for trainees. Um, but that's different from human factors. That's a very small part of human factors. This is about situation awareness, decision-making, um, teamwork, communication, leadership skills at the sharp end. Um, but that, there's, a, there's great enthusiasm for that, and actually it's coming up to the 20th anniversary of, of the NOTS project starting, which is even staggering to me. And we're having a, we have new curriculum coming out to try and update the curriculum to include things like cognitive load, um, impact of rudeness and, and aggression, other, how do you deal with difficult situations in the operating theatre? So those kind of personal resources, I think there's, a, there's still a need for that. And of course, trainees are coming through the system and trainees now in medical school, there's now more content on patient safety and more content on, uh, let's say, non-technical skills broadly, professionalism. So that's, there's mm-hmm. now a basis. 10, 20 years ago, the, maybe when you were starting, there was... There's no formal curriculum in those skills, so that probably explains why people were not great at them. It was down yeah. to, did you have aptitude to be a great leader or a great communicator yeah. or have awareness? And I suppose to a certain extent, you, you kind of model behaviour as well. So, you know, even though, you know, 
it would have been a fledgling. So I, I suppose I, I qualified from Orsi Sci here in 2007. So it would have been a fairly fledgling program mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. point. But my bosses necessarily wouldn't have been trained mm-hmm. in that either. So And the other thing, as you're saying, kind of rings true, of course, because as this disseminates throughout the workplaces and these people end up in positions of leadership, yeah. then you will hopefully have a situation where their juniors then kind of see this good behavior, I suppose, in inverted commas and, and trying yeah. to model it. But And I suppose it's an important point, and, and you kind of mentioned where you're you're trying to redevelop the program and your curriculum. I mean, how do you see how do you see this kind of training evolving over the next kind of mm. decade or so? I mean, are we going to be talking about uh, AI, mixed virtual reality? I mean, or, or is that just really just a, a flash in the pan? It's definitely not a flash in the pan. I can't <laughs> I can't see. I think it's I think the world is changing rapidly in terms of how we and how we um, use data and actually the expectations on on the data that are presented. Maybe surgery tracks. Um, behind that in the same way that, that spaceflight actually tracks behind the technology because for technology to go into space it has to really be proven and have a lot of validity evidence so actually the the, the tech and the kit that's in space is much older than what we're currently using terrestrially because of that you can't have reliability is so important and so in surgery as well it's slow to change but for good reason so we don't want to be knee-jerk changing all, all, all the time but um I think some work on on cognitive load. Some I can see surgical teams wearing sensors or devices to measure their cognitive load and give them personalised feedback. I can see v- augmented video being used for training. And um, we're currently thinking about how could we use video, certainly f- so OR black box, for example, certainly for looking at efficiency and p- performance and looking at adverse events to tr- to review those. I see video being used to for training to like um, help develop learning goals for the next month and to try and then track performance um, of trainees over time so they can have a video logbook, for example. But I see, I see the big change. So human factors training is really a bit of an oxymoron because most human factors experts would say training is the last resort. So actually what you need to do is focus on design. So we need to design systems to have the affordance so they're automatically just much easier to use and, and allow people to perform. Training, we do a lot of training really around bad systems or ineffective systems or inefficient systems. Um, and that's not going to change. Right? You can't stop the stop the earth, redesign everything and start again. So we have to do things incrementally. But I think there'll be some work on, on design um, as well, especially in the early stages of designing new hospitals, for example. And you see some great examples now of workflow around hospitals and operating rooms that actually are are designed with human factors and the people in mind rather than a purely engineering mindset. Kind of like trying to teach someone to cope with burnout. Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's too too late. It's it's important (laughs) to do that, but we need to address the systemic factors. Oh, this this has been amazing. I could talk all day. But I suppose just to, I suppose, start wrapping up here, I mean, if there's one thing you could change about your professional career to date i mean what could it, what would it be and and if there's one piece of advice you'd kind of give to to trainees coming through in that system what would that be yeah so i wouldn't change anything and i and i i don't have any regrets about anything which is not helpful for the podcast um but i think <laughs> i think i always try and get better and try and i try and and reflect and try and gather data challenging data so i'd say the one thing that i that i do 
um, that could be helpful is I try and identify where my weak spots are or where the bias is, which is very challenging to do, um, and then try and counteract that bias because we're all we're all suspect to cognitive bias in terms of data or the first time we meet somebody or the we make a lot of assumptions about about things and they can actually they're helpful because it allows us to be cognitively efficient and make rapid decisions and perform well as an expert and so on but they can often um, shut down avenues for that could be really helpful or enjoyable or 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 productive and so cognitive be aware of your cognitive weak spots but i say the one piece of advice i'd have is about saying no and so people say, okay, you got to say no. You can't say yes to everything. And I think that's really helpful advice. But it's challenging early in career because you don't quite know what to say no to. So I've got some advice on, on what to say no to. So there's certain people that you cannot say no to. And so I have a list of a small list of people who, if they ask me to do something, it's an auto yes. Absolutely. And so it doesn't require any cognitive. I don't have to weigh up the pros and cons or do anything like that. So auto yes. It's a small list of people. Um, and they include, obviously, my... The chair of surgery is <laughs> very important. I have some mentors who are who, if they would ask me to do something, it's an auto yes. But also people in the in the in the research lab. Hopefully they're not listening to this. They may ask me to do lots of things now. But <laughs> um, like I work for them in terms of a, of being the leader. So you know that's my role is to support them, not the other other way around. Mm-hmm. So that's very important. So um, I see. So you have to say no to something, and you have to say no to things that you don't want to do. It's easy to say no to things you don't want to do. That's that should be straightforward. Um, but you have to say no to something that you would really like to do, to be able to create um, time to to do the things that are that are really important. So you can't do everything. So that's my my tip is, you have to say no to a limited number of people. Work out who they are, and it's an don't spend any cognitive effort trying to weigh up the pros and cons. Just say yes and do that. And then to free up some time, if you're overwhelmed, you've got to say no to some things that you'd like to do. And if you're doing that, then you're doing your best to protect your own cognitive load. That's great advice and probably something I should take on board myself. (laughs) Uh, Professor Stephen Yule, thank you so much for coming to Dublin and spending the time with us. Uh, And you've got a packed day today, so uh, I'm delighted to have been able to get you on the podcast as well. But uh, thanks again for your time. Oh, it's been a real pleasure. I've, I've enjoyed chatting. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the show. As always, we need to thank our guests for their generous time, as well as our marketing, production, and technical support team. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review and follow us on social media. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode, and as ever, stay safe and sound.